From its first words to its last, the Gospel of Matthew calls people to a radical new frame of mind. In this literary masterpiece, the outsiders are brought in, the rich are exposed as poor, and those who seem most powerful are proven to be weak. But nothing in this book is as shocking as the circumstances surrounding the birth, life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth and the claims he makes on our lives. It's a narrative so profound, everyone has a response. Welcome here. My name is Norm, one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, one piece of information before we get into our study of Matthew this morning, and that is uh, an announcement uh, pertaining to the North Shore ministry. We are a church that has three campuses here downtown, one over in Coquitlam and one on the North Shore. The North Shore campus has come to a place um, as we assess it, when I say we, the elders of this ministry assess it, we believe that God is leading the North Shore campus to a place of standalone church status. This has been a process that we've been discussing for the last 18 or so months, praying about it, fasting, much discussion, assessment, and all of that. We met with the North Shore body last Sunday night after our AGM here, and we presented this to them, and we asked that they would pray about it, consider it, and then next Sunday, come together and vote for it, affirm it by ballot, and uh, if by chance, they feel like this is not the right step for that ministry, well then by ballot we'll realize that. If we don't receive 75% affirmation, we won't move forward. But if we do, we will move forward with the goal to launch the Shore Church on the North Shore April 1st of 2018. So at about five or so months. So we're giving that out as information. There's more stuff online, videos and so forth if you want to find out the reasons why. Just so you know, in short order, all of the reasons are positive. We're very excited about what's going on on the North Shore, but we are a ministry committed to planting churches. Um, we, we feel that campus ministry is a good thing, but the end goal, if God leads, should be a standalone church in an area. And so we're committed to that and hope that that would take place hereafter if we ever have the chance to continue down this road. So be praying about it. We'll keep you in the loop, let you know how the, uh, the vote next next Sunday goes. And then please just pray about these next five months as we move forward. There's a lot of work that has to go into, into moving something from a campus to a standalone church status. So be praying for the leadership of the team over there and also our leadership here as we help them in that process. All right? All right. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 verses 24 to 28 is where we are today as we continue on in our study of of Matthew's gospel. Like I said, we're looking at the last five verses of chapter 16. As you find it, let me pray, then we'll start walking through what is a, a wondrous, heavy, great text, all, all at the same time. So let's pray for God's favor as we walk through these verses. Uh, Father, um, even in talking about uh, sensing your direction for the North Shore ministry, I say that in light of how wondrous that fact is, that, that you are not simply a God who exists, but a God who exists personally, um, relationally with us, uh, that you, you care for us, that you, you know our comings and our goings, and you are involved in them that you have plans and purposes for us, that you have good works that you've 
preordained for us to walk in. We thank you for that. We thank you, therefore, that you lead us personally and corporately, and we, we do pray for your continued direction for us in a ministry sense, corporately, but also specifically with the North Shore. We want to make Jesus known on the North Shore, and we believe this is the best way to do so. So help us in this. Guide us. Uh, make your ways clear to us, I pray. I also pray for the women who are coming down in the next couple of hours from Whistler. Bring them back safe, I pray. I thank you that good things have gone on, and I, I pray that they would just take root and they would birth forth fruit hereafter, friendships and relationships and ministry and growth in you. So I pray that this wouldn't just be a weekend, but a weekend that people would look back on as, as a significant moment uh, in their journey with you. And, and Father, we're also thankful and we, we are very aware that you speak to us, that you don't only exist, but you speak to us and speak to us by way of your word that you've given to us. And so as we walk through these verses in Matthew 16 today, guide us by way of your spirit so that we see what we need to see. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were here, was a week of movement, a week where we began transitioning from the ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. So Israel is made up of different regions, and the northern region is Galilee, and primarily the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry, the three, three and a half years of ministry, took place in Galilee. Uh, every once in a while, he would go down to Jerusalem like an observant, good observant Jew to observe the feasts and take part in them. But again, most of his time was spent up in the north. And last week, we saw a transition take place, however, where Jesus is beginning to move from the region of Galilee. If you remember from last week, he's about as far north as you can get and still be in Israel, Caesarea Philippi, where he posed a question, who do people say that I am? Peter responded by saying that you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, which led to a revelation, if you remember, in verse 21, where Jesus from that time began telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he would suffer there, he would die there, he would be buried there, but he would rise three days thereafter. That was last week. One of the questions that we wrestled with last week, in fact, it's the question that ended our time last week was, why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? He said it was a must, that from that time on, it's a must that I go to Jerusalem and this takes place. And if you remember again from last week, the answers we suggested then, the answer, excuse me, that we suggested then rested on verses 18 and 19, where Jesus made several promises. He promised that he would build his church. He promised that the gates of hell or Hades would not stand against it. And he also promised that keys would be given, keys that we talked about as being the keys of the gospel, the keys of the gospel that would free people from the bondage of hell. And so we suggested strongly last week that Jesus must go to Jerusalem because those promises rest on him dying and rising thereafter. Again, that was last week. But there's something more. Something more to this which leads into today regarding why Jesus must go to Jerusalem. And that is Jesus must go to Jerusalem for his way is to be our way too. 
In other words, the cross, that was a must for Jesus, is a must for us as well. So that's another reason, which brings us to our text, verse 24 to 28. But let me just read the first verse and then stop, and we'll kind of take it verse by verse for the rest of our time. Verse 24 begins, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him, let her deny himself or herself and take up his or her cross and follow me. You can just stop there. So it's a threefold call in verse 24. It's a call to deny, it's a call to take, and it's a call to follow. That's the call of verse 24. We must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross, and we must follow Jesus. That's the call in verse 24. What takes place in the rest of the text is Jesus laying out three reasons why. I say that with assurance because if you notice verse 25, 26, and 27, they each begin with the word for if you're using the translation that we use here. So Jesus says, this is my call on you. You must deny, you must take, you must follow. And the reasons why are verse 25, 26, and 27. So there's our outline. A threefold call followed with three reasons why. So let's start with the call first and then we'll go on thereafter. As I said, Jesus says, and I want you to look at verse 24 specifically, he says there that if anyone would come after him, they must deny, take, and follow. I highlight, it, I highlight that again because I want you to note the word anyone. It's an important word. For it tells us that this isn't only a call for the committed few, but for all who identify themselves with Jesus and call themselves Christian. So if that's you, if you identify yourself with Jesus, Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, this is a must call for you. It's a call for anyone. It's a must call for anyone. As much a must for us as the journey to Jerusalem was for Jesus. A journey for us that begins, please note it one more time, with the denial of self. They must. If they're to follow me, they must deny themselves. But what does that mean? Well, I believe the answer is found in what Jesus reveals next when saying in verse 24 that we need to take up our cross. In other words, we deny ourselves by taking up our cross. So the question now is what? What does that mean? What does it mean to take up our cross? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about taking up our cross today, right? We talk about being something, being the cross that we bear. Like, you know what? I'm beautiful. It's just the cross that I bear. Right? You've heard people say that. It's not jobby. But you hear people say that in reference to the cross. Like, that's the burden on their life. Is that what Jesus is talking about? So what is he talking about? What does it mean? Well, I believe it means that we're willing to take on what the cross represents. And what does the cross represent? Well, I borrow this, but I find the categories helpful. It represents opposition, shame, suffering, and death. 
all coming as a result of following Jesus. That's what it means to take up our cross. But there's an issue, right, here in 2017 in Vancouver, and the issue is we don't carry a literal cross like Jesus did, and therefore we don't hang battered and bruised and beaten and naked before a jeering crowd, nor, nor do we live with the threat here in Vancouver in this day of being arrested because we follow Jesus and being brought before kangaroo courts early in the morning like Jesus did. We don't face those. Some do, but we don't face those threats here. Truth be told, for most of us, the greatest suffering we will undergo in connection with Jesus today is having to plug a meter and walk three blocks to church. That's the biggest thing we'll have to deal with today as connected to Jesus. Now, in saying that, however, I'm not meaning to downplay what some of you are going through. My point is that in general, what we go through today is rather tame in comparison to what Jesus and his disciples thereafter experienced then. I I think we would all recognize that. We would all confess that, admit that, we understand that. However, and here's here's my challenge And what I want to propose to you, this this text is as relevant today for us in 2017 in Vancouver as it was to those who were in the audience of Jesus then. No different. Exact same relevance and practicality for us. So how do we approach this then? Well, I think we approach this text another way, and consider what the cross represents from the opposite perspective. In other words, if the, if the cross represents opposition and suffering and shame and death, what then are we called to deny? Because we're called to deny something. We're to, to deny ourselves. If that's what picking up the cross is, then what are we, what are we to deny? What are the opposites? What are their opposites, in other words? Well, again, credit to others who have shaped some of my thoughts on this, but what it means is that we are to deny approval, honor, comfort, and life. For that is the opposite. The opposite of opposition is approval. The opposite of shame is honor. The opposite of suffering is comfort. And the opposite of death is is life. And so we are to deny those things. And I say that because I find backing of this idea all through the New Testament. For example, I find support for this in what Paul writes in Galatians 1 when speaking of approval. Writing there, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I also find support for this in something Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 when speaking of honor. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited And also in what Jesus says in Matthew 8 when inferring to comfort 
In Matthew 8, the scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, in response, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then lastly, I find support in what Paul writes in Colossians 3 when speaking of death, writing there, for you've died. If you're in Christ, you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. This last verse makes sense, does it not? For death is, after all, the end game of the cross, isn't it? Its reality prompted the German theologian and anti-Nazi dissident Dietrich Bonhoeffer to write, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, he bids them come and die. So taking up the cross then is a call to deny ourselves approval, honor, comfort, and life. This is the way of the cross. Aren't you glad you came? But here's the thing. When I say that, and the reason why I pause here is I can almost feel the pushback that some of you have towards what I'm saying. And so let me enter that pushback. I mean, if I was with you listening to what I'm talking about now, I'd push back too. And therefore, before moving on, I want you to understand that I'm not suggesting that seeking approval, honor, comfort, and life of any sort is wrong. In fact, I believe that pursuing them is altogether right. In fact, I believe Jesus knows that we need to seek after them, that we crave them. In fact, I believe Jesus knows that they've been hardwired into us, and therefore, Jesus isn't calling us to not seek them altogether, but to pursue them properly and rightly and therefore in him. And so the way of the cross may mean opposition from the world. But in return, what does it bring? Approval in Jesus. You may get eye rolls or worse by your family, by people you work with, people that you just come across, mocking you for what you believe, for stands that you take for positions you have, for words that you share, you may take opposition. But in return, you receive the approval of Jesus. And it may bring shame from the world, but in return it brings honor from Jesus. The well done from Jesus. The enter the joy of your Father from Jesus. And it may bring suffering from the world, but in return it brings comfort from Jesus. And it may bring death from the world. People will die today because they know Christ. But in return it brings life, abundant and eternal life from Jesus. The question that we have to wrestle with before moving on is, what means more to you? The comfort and the approval 
the honor and the life from Jesus or from the world? What's more precious? Vital questions for this call in verse 24 is to a pursuit that is unattainable if we love the world and what it offers more than Jesus and what he does. It's unattainable. Like, don't attempt it. What you will be like, what I would be like, what we would be like if we tried to attempt verse 24 with a love for the world more than Jesus would be akin to someone starting a building project and having to stop halfway through. We won't be able to finish it. I borrow that analogy from Jesus himself. He said, count the cost before you start. We need to love him more. I also can say this with assurance because that's in fact what John, one closest to Jesus, writes in 1 John chapter 2, writing, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we need the love of the Father in us if we're to attain verse 24. So that's the call. Deny, take, and follow. Jesus then, in the three verses that follow, gives us three reasons why. Let's take them one by one. Here's reason number one. For or because, you can read the word for as because. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you get what Jesus is doing. Deny, take, follow because if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. This verse, by the way, can be somewhat confusing. So let's take it half at a time, okay? So just, again, put your eyes down in verse 25. In its first half, Jesus says, because or for whoever would save his life will lose it. Okay, here's the question. Save his life from what? Because it doesn't quite make sense. If you save your life, you'll lose your life. So Jesus, help us out. Save our life from what? Well, the answer, save his life from a life that chooses the cross. Whoever saves his life, whoever chooses a life that isn't the way of the cross, will lose their life. One where one chooses instead approval, honor, comfort in life or self-preservation. If that's most important and sought outside of Jesus, we will lose our life. It's living for our sake and not his. That's what saving our life is. Living for our sake and not for the sake of Christ. Jesus says that if that's your aim, then you'll lose your soul. The second half of verse 25 is the flip side of the, of the argument, so to speak. If you choose life, or choose the life of the cross, if you choose to deny yourself, in other words, and follow Jesus, then you'll find your soul. So save your life from the cross, lose your soul. Choose the cross, find it. You'll win it. That's verse 25. And that's why we should deny and pick up and follow because the end when we do is we win. We win. We gain. But if we choose the other, we lose. 
And what I love about verse 25 is that it affirms something I mentioned earlier. What I mentioned er earlier is the life-winning and, excuse me, life-winning and soul-saving are great pursuits. They are great pursuits. They're in us. We want life. We want to really live. We want to win. We want abundance. We want reward. We want acclaim. We want honor. We want, we want comfort. We want it all. That's in us. We want all of that and something Jesus assumes of us, but please hear me. When Jesus, what Jesus doesn't want is for us to settle for something less than what he has for us. That's what Jesus wants for you and me. He doesn't want us to settle. He doesn't want us to settle for anything less than what he has for us, anything that less than what he has for us in him. Don't settle for the temporal comfort, honor, and acclaim the world offers and give up that which is most glorious and eternal and found only in him. That's Jesus' point. Before moving on to the second why, a question. Why must the way of the cross be our way too? I mean, why couldn't it just simply be Jesus' way? Jesus, you take the cross. I'll do something else. Why not? Why, why is that? Why do, why do we follow this? Why do we follow this pattern? Well, the answer is for the same reason the way of the cross was the way for Jesus. And what is that? What is that reason? To bring glory to God. That's why. For Jesus, the way of the cross brought salvation. We've talked about that much. And forgiveness and conquered death and set an example and secured his promises as we talked about last week. But what it did most of all was glorify his Father. The Father is never more glorified than when Jesus hung on the cross. Never. It's on the cross where the love of God is fully displayed. We know what love is. Why? Because Jesus died for us while we were sinners. We also see the grandeur of the glory of the holiness and the righteousness of God with Jesus on the cross. That was first and foremost in Jesus' mind when he took the cross to bring glory to his Father. That way is to be our way too. We take the cross like Jesus took the cross because when we take the cross, it makes much of Jesus. It says to the world, I'm willing to deny myself that, choose that, live like that, give myself to that, not because I'm ripped off, but because I've got something much greater. Giving up that for Jesus and relationship and approval and honor and comfort and satisfaction and joy in Jesus. We live like that in Vancouver. We will stand out, man. Like crazy. Live content in Jesus in Vancouver. 
people will think you've lost it. It makes much of him. Simply the way of the cross is to be the way of the Christian for it makes much of Christ. It says that in comparison to gaining Jesus, what this world offers is just so much crap. That's Paul. Right? Paul goes, man, I had that, that. Benjaminite, circumcised on the eighth day. Right? A Jew's Jew. I did everything right. And then I met Jesus. That's crap. I got Jesus. So that's the reason why the way of the cross needs to be our way too, which leads us to a second reason why. Verse 26. For or because, what will it profit a man or a woman if he, she gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man, a woman, give in return for their soul? If you're a business owner, and you don't only need to be a business owner to understand what I'm about to talk about, but if you are a business owner, you'll have had much experience with something called a profit loss statement. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, quite simply, it's a statement that really just lays out your profits over a period of time, let's call it a year, and your losses or your expenses. So you made a million bucks this year, you had to pay out 750,000 bucks this year, your net gain at the end of the year is $250,000. Profit, loss, hopefully a net gain at the end of the day. Verse 26 is a profit loss statement. And what it tells us is that even if what we gain in a lifetime is everything this world offers, all the approval, all of the honor, all of the accolades, all of the titles, all of the acclaims, all of the treasures, everything that can be squeezed out of it, every bucket list, list item checked off, everyone. And, and yet we lose our soul then our net gain is no gain at all. In fact, it's the greatest of losses. That's verse 26. Why is that? For this world has a shelf life and your soul doesn't. The things this world offers have an expiry date. You don't. Adding weight to this is the question that Jesus asks in the second half of verse 26. What shall a man give in return for his soul? This question doesn't only point out the value of the soul, although it certainly does. But more than that, what it does is it declares that any way of life that seeks to gain and win to the exclusion of the way of the cross will be found wanting. Nothing will measure up. Nothing will prove profitable and eternally satisfying. What Jesus is asking in verse 26, in a sense, is why would you give up your soul for what the world offers? It's too high price to pay for what you get in return. And once again, <clears throat> and the beauty of it, 
Jesus isn't downplaying our craving and our wants, but telling us to find their satisfaction of them in him. All our pursuits, desires, and wants hint at something much bigger and much more transcendent. Our enemy and our flesh, too, wants us to choose the horizontal. So you have cravings, you have wants, you have desires, you want comfort, you want relationship, all of that. You find it here. That's what our world says. Find it here. You can find it all here. Just check it off. You can find it all here. And what Jesus says is, I know you want all of those, but seek them here. Seek them here. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And then he says this, and all of these will be added unto you. Have you ever read the promises of the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes, first part of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. Let me just read a couple of them for you, four to be exact. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when you recognize your poverty of spirit, that without God you're nothing, you get the kingdom. You get the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So seek this. Seek this, and the kingdom's yours. Seek this, and comfort's yours. Seek this, inheritance is yours. Seek this, satisfaction is yours. Pursue this and you will receive this. As someone said, <coughs> pursue heaven and you get earth too. Pursue earth and you get neither. That's verse 26. Third and final reason why, verse 27. For the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he or she has done. I think we get what the reason here is. In the previous verse, Jesus stated that exchanging your soul for the world is nonsense. It's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. Now in this highly Christologically affirming verse, and it is. I'm coming with my angels to the, with the glory of my Father. Highly Christologically affirming verse. Jesus says in it that giving our life in exchange for his kingdom will profit us, will be repaid, each person. But here's the truth about verse 27 and this repayment. We will not be repaid fairly, not even close. What we receive when compared to what we give up is not worth comparing. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, there's our word, our phrase, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's what you need to understand about what Paul is talking about here when it talks about our sufferings. He's not downplaying them. In context of Romans 8, he talks about life and death, famine, beatings, earthquakes, talks about all of it. 
He's not downplaying it. What he's doing is he's making much of the reward. And he says it's not worth comparing. What we give up, not worth comparing. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why is it not worth comparing? Because it's beyond all comparison. Isn't that great? Like, don't compare it to anything. That's when a person dies and says they've gone to heaven and they come back and they tell us what it's like. They're lying. You know, it's nothing to compare it to. It's, it's wondrous. So Jesus says, the third reason why is because you're going to be rewarded this way. So deny now. Take up your cross now. and Follow me now. Because you're going to be repaid. Unfairly compensated. Because it will make much of my grace. Isn't that beautiful? It actually wouldn't be gracious for us to be repaid by Jesus fairly. Because he's a gracious God. If we were repaid fairly, it wouldn't be grace. It's wondrous. In about two hours, I got to get on a plane. I'm flying to Quebec City for a church planting conference. Uh, confession time to you. I, I really do not like flying. I, in fact, I, I kind of hate flying. I, I, I really hate everything about flying, to be honest with you. I don't like, like the long-term parking. You know when you have to go park, long-term parking? Because I'm the guy when they get back from the trip, forget where, you know, they just forget where they park. I'm the guy running around with my fob, hoping my, you know, car chirps or the lights, you know, go on. And I, I don't like the lineups. I don't like going through customs. I don't like going through security. I don't like when I got to take my shoes off. I don't like doing this thing because I don't know what they're seeing, right? I don't know what that is. kind of freaks me out. All right. I don't like dogs on the plane. Not a fan of that, right? Especially when they sit next to me. I'm not a real fan of dogs on laps next to me. Not fans. I'm not fan. I'm not a fan because I never, when I get on a plane, get to turn left. You know what I mean when you get on a plane? You know what left is, right? That's first class. I never have turned left on a plane ever in my life. When I get on a plane, I have to turn right all the time. All the time. And what lays a weight for you when you turn right is all sorts of things. And it's kind of scary. Right? You can get sitting next to the guy who feels like the armrest is his world. Right? His world. You ain't getting any of that bad boy. That's his. Or the person that showering maybe was not on the, you know, agenda for the morning. Right? The BO is a little bit stenchy. That person. All of I don't. I don't like turbulence. I know some people say turbulence can't bring down a plane. Eh, maybe, right? Maybe, right? I don't like turbulence. I don't like it at all. I try to act like it's no big deal, but just you can watch my hands grabbing while I'm trying to laugh. I don't like turbulence. I don't like, I don't like turbulence at all. I'm, I'm, I'm back. I know, I believe, believe me, I believe that God is sovereign, right? I believe in that. I know he's in charge of my life, but I'm just not a big fan of the whole idea of landing hard somewhere, right? I'm not a big believer of that either. So I don't like flying. I don't like flying at all. I think I've made my point. 
So why do I keep flying? Why do I keep flying? I mean, why do I even sometimes get delighted about flying? In fact, why, why do I keep on paying to fly in spite of the, the turbulence and the annoyance and the stuff I got to go through? Do you know why I keep on flying? You know why I keep on paying the price to fly? The destination. The destination keeps me moving because the price of some inconvenience is nothing in comparison with two or three weeks in the sun. Isn't that the way of the cross? Isn't that the way of Jesus? I mean, isn't that the way of Jesus as the writer of Hebrews describes it? Jesus who despised the shame of the cross. Endured it. Why? For the joy that was set before him. For the glory that it brought his father. He pressed on towards the destination. Westside and friends, his way is to be our way too. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, Paul writes, for that is better by far. But in the meantime, I'm going to do good ministry is what he says. That should be our life. Good ministry with a desire to be with Jesus. Make much of Jesus here, looking ahead to when we will see him face to face. It's the destination that Jesus speaks of in verse 28 when saying, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This verse has confused many, but will be answered in what we'll walk through next week. A text that gives us a glimpse of the destination that's coming. So disciples of Jesus, I close by asking you to hear the call of your Lord one more time, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Why? For by losing you will find, for nothing is worth the price of your soul, and for a time is coming when the price you've paid will be compensated with a reward beyond all comparison. Keep flying. The destination's worth it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, now as we respond to your word, I pray for those groups that we have amongst the larger group here. I pray for those who, who want you without the cross that you took. They like the idea of Jesus. They like the idea of, of, of what you are about, but they, they don't want to wrestle with the implications of you coming and taking the cross. So I pray for them, that they would see the necessity, why you must have taken the cross, why you must for them Paying their penalty, a penalty that needed to be paid. Dying a death that needed to be died for. 
them for us and then rising thereafter. So I, I pray for those that right now are just kicking the tires, so to speak, of you, Jesus, but really aren't fully vested in, in, in just being willing to deal with the implications of why you came and what you came to do. So I pray for them. But I also pray for those of us in here who, who claim to be followers of you, Jesus, but really don't want to consider the cross that you've called them to carry. A cross to make much of you by seeking what is most precious in you and not by way of the world. So I pray, I pray for them that their love for you would grow and grow and grow so that their desire, their desire to make much of you by living a life of self-denial would come to greater and greater fruition. Because it's impossible to live this way without a love for you, a deep love for you. So increase our love, as Paul writes to the Philippian church, that our love and our knowledge would increase. So deepen, please, please deepen our love for you, Jesus, by way of your spirit. And that we would live in ways that honor you. Give us wisdom in how to do that. I pray for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.